you're kind of blazing trails right and left. It just gives you this sense of fulfillment and purpose. That's the voice of Rini McCarthy, CEO of Stealth Biotherapeutics, headquartered in Needham, Massachusetts. Listen in now to hear Rini's thoughts about leadership and how Stealth Biotherapeutics is working on developing therapies to treat the mitochondrial dysfunction associated with genetic mitochondrial diseases and many common age-related diseases. I'm John Simbley. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm in Needham, Massachusetts with Rini McCarthy, CEO of Stealth Biotherapeutics, headquartered in Needham. Welcome to BioBoss, Rini. Thank you so much, John. It's great to see you in person and to be here with you today. Rini, what led you to your role as CEO of Stealth Therapeutics? I worked for about 20 years at Morningside Ventures, which is a private um, venture, early stage venture investment group, um, investing in transformational biotech opportunities, but also tech and other. And I was based in Boston in that role. And Stealth was one of our portfolio investments, which I had you know, worked on when, we, when it was formed and, and sat on the board of. Um, when we decided to move from what's kind of known as actually like virtual mode, right, to actually hiring employees and building out a team and getting into the clinic, there was a bit of a leadership vacuum at the company. So I jumped in on an term basis um, to fill that vacuum for a short period of time. And it was a huge learning curve. Uh, so it felt like drinking from a fire hose. But uh, the team actually asked me to stay, which was very flattering. And I think that, you know, we just clicked and connected well, and it worked. Is that something you anticipated as you were going through your career? Did you think any point prior to that? You know, I think I'll be a biopharma CEO at some point. No, never. I mean, I'm a lawyer by training. I did join Morningside, you know, again, uh, in 1993. So there I was leading the biotech investment team. So certainly learned a lot about working with early stage biotech companies. When you invest early, you tend to have a closer, you know, look under the hood as it were, and you're more involved as a board member, but I never saw myself in a leadership role. Once you made that transition, did it, did you have the sense, or maybe it took a little while to figure out, but did, did it feel like, oh, this is something I probably was meant to do. This, this feels right. I'm, I'm cast well here. I don't know if I felt I, I, I was meant to do it, but I will say it's incredibly fulfilling, right? You feel like you're a part of something bigger. So I'll back up a little. As a lawyer, you know, it's unclear what team you're on, right? You work for different clients on different projects, often short term, and, and so you don't have that sense of ownership. As an early stage biotech investor, you certainly have a closer sense of ownership, right? Because you're nurturing young companies, but you're still like a step away. Um, when you're in an operating company, particularly particularly one like stealth where we're tackling, you know, diseases that there's no, there's no proof therapies for, you know, you're kind of blazing trails right and left. Um, it just gives you this sense of fulfillment and purpose, right? That is different, I think, from any of my prior professional experiences. People probably wonder, what does a biopharma CEO do? People can picture what a scientist does. People can picture a lawyer does. Uh, what does a biopharma CEO do? You do what you need to do right? You pitch in where you need to pitch in. I think I brought to the table a different perspective than somebody coming out of a pharma background. I, as an investor, you're taught to ask questions and, you know, challenge the norms and think outside the box. And so some of that was maybe refreshing. Um, and, and that's certainly part of the role because you're on an executive team and you develop strategy together. And, and a lot of that is asking questions and, and trying to challenge perceptions, right? But you also have to 
bring the stealth story to the outside world and you have to bring the outside world perspective into the company. And so a lot of it is really communicating and bridging that communication gap, making sure that, you know, the teams work together in an integrated fashion, which doesn't always happen. You know, pharma companies can be somewhat siloed. We hire many people from those backgrounds. So trying to break that down and establish like more dynamic communications cross-functionally. But, you know, I'll write regulatory documents when I need to, too. So you do what you need to do. You had an insight into the company from the investment world when you came in when you made that decision that to, to become the leader, what were you hoping to achieve at Stealth that you might not have been able to do someplace else? I think that really we were trying to define a path to bring first-in-class medicine and first-in-class approach to the treatment of human disease forward for patients. And to do it in a way that you know made sense both commercially and from a clinical development perspective and financially for us as a company. Um, that, that was the objective. And, and these are many of these are rare diseases. Others are diseases of aging. Again, there's no therapies. So really trying to understand the patient perspective, use that in designing our trials and, and bring forward therapies for patients. I mean, that's the mission. And that certainly was mine. What have you learned over the years of being a leader at Stealth Biotherapeutics about what management style worked for you, is you, describes you? You know, I, I work better through teams. I do think you should be able to have a conversation with one anyone in the organization. Like we bring in people who are smart and who are creative and who can contribute. And so I think everyone's voice should be heard. I don't think that it should be sort of siloed or really super hierarchical. And, you know, that's worked well for us at Stealth. I also try to get feedback. I mean, I've encouraged broad 360 feedback on my performance for my team, which I will say I cringe every time I get it and my stomach is all knotted, but I think it's super important to get that, right? It keeps you real. Can you remember when you were eight or nine, what image you had or what you might want to be when you grew up, realizing that for most of us, it was trying to figure out what our parents thought we should be when we got to be adults? I don't know that I had a clear view, but I will say that I was the kid who always had my nose in a book in the back of the car. Um, usually it was like a science fiction book. There's a an interesting thing when I first came into stealth and I kept going back to it. Again, I'm not a scientist, so I was reading and learning about mitochondria because you have to speak to the science as a CEO. And I knew generally, but I remember um, one of the series I loved was Madeline Longo's, you know, Wind in the Door. And there's, there's, episode where Charles Wallace goes in and communicates with his mitochondria because he's sick. Um, And so that came very much to mind. So I think for me, I was definitely a reader and a writer as a kid. Um, This is different, but in some ways it's all about communication. It's about telling a story. It's about crafting a story um, and keeping it held together. Um, Again, both internally for my team and externally for the world. So maybe some synergies. What do you say when people ask you, who is Stealth Therapeutics? We're working on mitochondrial targeted therapeutics, which when you think about our mitochondria, they are essential for us to live. They produce most of our energy and they are broadly implicated across human pathologies. So that's what we do as a company. Um, Rare diseases, for sure, as well as diseases associated with aging. If there are other companies in the space, how do you differentiate yourself from those? We were one of the earliest in the space. So mitochondria, again, they are essential for human life. They're really hard to get to. So targeting mitochondria is challenging. Uh, There are, 
as of recent years, other companies starting to come into the space or other companies with drugs that might work downstream of mitochondria, but they're implicating some of the same pathways. I think that what distinguishes us is mechanistically, we really are targeting directly the mitochondria and one of the key aspects of mitochondrial dysfunction that leads to pathology broadly across disease. So we're not looking at a specific mitochondrial gene. We're targeting um, really a structural issue, a structural damage that happens to mitochondria when there is a genetic defect or when there is some type of pathology, like a stroke, right, that's going to damage mitochondria. So it's a fairly ubiquitous mechanism. In my experience, when a CEO makes a presentation, let's say at an investor conference, it's, it's often the case that, that what you're looking for is to divide and, and figure out quickly who might be a good person to have another conversation or follow-up conversation with who might just not fit. There's that interesting group, a uh, third group, that appears to be a good fit, but after you speak with them, you realize they heard something different than what you intended. And that's often interesting. How do you... Now, if the word is correct, but how do you bring that back into focus? How do you say, well, no, this is actually not this, it's this. Does that happen? And if so, how do you get back on track? Mitochondrial dysfunction is closely associated with aging and the aging process, right? And so you will sometimes have conversations with people who talk about, well, can you treat aging or prolong health span or this, that, or the other thing? And, and the answer there is yes, maybe, probably, um, but there's no approved regulatory pathway for aging. Like we are not in longevity therapeutics, although we will target diseases associated with aging. Um, we're pretty clearly trying to develop drugs to treat human disease, not develop nutraceuticals essentially, because that's really the only thing um, on that side of the equation. I think you sometimes have other conversations where people don't really understand the technology because they're used to therapeutics working a different way, right? We're, we're, we're targeting an organelle, which, which came from bacteria for goodness sakes in the first place. Right. So it's, it's really not like mammalian biology, even though it's well integrated with people. And so I do think there's a lot of education with people who are used to blocking receptors or doing things that are much more closely suited to human biology who wonder why we're targeting a lipid in the inner mitochondrial membrane. So there is a lot of education that has to happen there. What makes a good partner? What's a good partner fit for self-biotherapeutics? We have over 100 peer-reviewed publications discussing alimipratide across disease models. Many of those came out of, out, out of academia, right? So in terms of academic partners, um, I would say it's, it's a group that you can work closely with that will kind of keep you apprised of when they're going to be, you know, publishing of what experiments they're doing, who you can have a dialogue back and forth with, right? We know a lot about how our drug works and, you know, what doesn't work, you know, particularly mitochondria are a little bit finicky. So certain assays might have to be done a certain way. And so having a partner who you can build that dialogue and communication with, um, and it's a respectful situation is important in terms of like academic collaborations, um, industry collaborations. I think we look for common missions, right? We, um, we look for, for partners certainly who know the therapeutic area, but who also are dedicated to incorporating the patient voice, particularly in rare disease settings, because that's so important. It's like crucial for, it's crucial for clinical success. It's crucial for commercial success. It's crucial for regulatory success. So certainly in rare disease education, that's really, really important. What kinds of people thrive as employees at Stealth Therapeutics? 
what defines our team is people who are passionate about the science, passionate about developing therapies for patients, and really want to learn. Um, there's just a lot of opportunity, a small company that has a fairly flat managerial structure um, and, you know, just a dedication not to be siloed, to have good cross-functional communication. That that brings a lot of learning opportunities for people to kind of stretch their wings and, and like um, move into other areas or, you know, fully um, utilize their capabilities and their creativity across the organization. And so those are the people who do well here. You know, people who are a little bit brave in that way and who are willing to, to learn and push themselves. Rini, what's new at Stealth Therapeutics? We do have a major data readout coming up uh, next quarter in dry age-related macular degeneration. But I think that on the, the new and exciting front, we have very recent data in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which really defines a potential path in that disease. We're seeing more than doubling of dystrophin levels in the gold standard animal model when we treat on top of standard of care. Um, and we're also seeing some very promising you know, uh, preclinical and, and, you know, rationale for moving forward to target the cardiomyopathy, which is the leading cause of death in Duchesne. So two different development paths there that I think um, there's a lot of enthusiasm about, certainly in the DMD community and, and with us internally. We are also with a new compound that we're just bringing into phase one right now, um, seeing really strong signals across a number of neurological diseases. So like ALS and frontotemporal dementia and Huntington's and Parkinson's, that SBT272, this new compound, can improve neuronal function, um, in some cases reduce protein aggregates like tau tangles, um, improve motor function, again, across these different disease models. So that's super exciting because it just opens up a whole new therapeutic area for us. How do you figure when to pivot or change from one direction going into another and have it all still stick together and make the best? I think, again, when you're kind of like first in class, which this is from a mitochondrial targeted therapeutic perspective, there's a lot that you don't know from animal models. I mean, it's, and it's not just in rare diseases, it's in common diseases too. So we see with alimipratide and SBT272 an almost immediate improvement in bioenergetics of mitochondria, but that doesn't mean you're going to improve end organ function. What we've learned in our studies, you know, where we originally were doing pretty short clinical trials, you know, a day or a week or a month, that really um, to see changes in organ function, it is taking many months. You know, in Barth syndrome, we saw signs of cardiac reverse remodeling after about nine months. That isn't necessarily what we would have expected, but it is incredibly informative for like new approaches. And so with the learnings from Barth, that's what brought us over to Duchesne to look at the cardiomyopathy in Duchesne. We had always seen, you know, that alimipratide can improve cardiac function, but until we really saw, well, it's this duration and it's this specific function and how could that apply to other diseases, you know, that's where you bring those learnings. I would say that, you know, and, and it's interesting because one of our key investors has said the investment thesis is stronger now than it has ever been at any point during the company's history because you've learned so much. How does the Stealth Therapeutics Pipeline express your vision for the company? We're looking at disease areas where there's the highest demand for mitochondrial energy. So that's kind of roughly how we've chunked up our approach. 
uh, it's, we'll go into meetings with investors or others who say, oh, you need to be focused in your approach. And we come out with like six new ideas of new indications we should look at. So we've tried to, to really focus again on particular disease areas where there's a huge demand for mitochondrial bioenergetics. Um, and then within that, we focus primarily on rare diseases. And the reason for that is that we can do smaller clinical trials. There is a huge unmet need and we can commercialize those indications ourselves as a small company. I will say that that doesn't mean that we aren't still in the back of our mind thinking about aging because it, it is an obvious fit for mitochondrial targeted therapeutics. And so clearly we're in phase two in dry age related macular degeneration. We would probably look to partner that program to commercialize because and to do phase three because it's a big it's a big chunk for us to bite off. But I do think that, you know, optimistically looking to the future, if we establish a rare disease franchise, we can grow with that and then move into larger disease areas where there, there is a huge rationale for mitochondrial targeted drugs. What good can you do in the world if self therapeutics succeeds as you hope it will? I do think that this is a very differentiated and sensible approach to the treatment of human disease. Restoring normal bioenergetics has so many downstream consequences that it could make a big difference in the day-to-day lives of patients, right? So we are in some rare diseases, and I think in rare disease, you can kind of go into anecdotes. We've, you know, collected data from patients in a fairly structured way, in a pre-specified way, but it's patients talking about the impact of therapy on their activities of daily living. And so, for example, in Barr syndrome, which is an ultra rare disease, we have four of seven patients who were on long-term therapy, you know, working, um, working jobs, going to school, which really like isn't something that you expect to see for patients affected by that disease. It's very challenging for many of these patients, you know, to even go to, to go to school for a full day, never mind taking on a part-time job afterwards. Patients who, you know, talk about being able to be social or go to the gym for the first time ever, or patients, you know, with another rare disease, Labor's hereditary optic neuropathy, who tell us, you know, we can see colors now and red is a really important color. It tells you when to stop. The effects you can have in the rare disease setting are meaningful. The effects you can have, you know, again, if this approach works in dry AMD for patients affected by that disease, the isolation um, and depression that comes with losing vision as an elderly individual it's similar to, to end-stage renal failure, you know, as patients describe it, right? So if you can slow down the progression, potentially even restore visual function to patients, it makes a huge difference to their quality of life, to how they feel and function. So it's that concept of health span, I think, both for patients affected by rare disease and for older patients. Bioenergetics goes to health span. It goes to how you feel and how you function. In the rare disease world, you get a pretty close-up view of how your work potentially can affect the lives of individual human beings. You're also in knee-deep, neck-deep in the world of data and scientific platforms. How do you how do you keep those two in balance? When we first started looking at data in Barr syndrome, where we could only enroll 12 patients, the disease affects less than 150 in the U.S., you know, you don't see a clear statistical signal and a good p-value, and you say, 
that's done. But when you then start to look and say, this was a really consistent signal for every patient across just about every endpoint that we studied, you start to reset your mind and your expectations. So you have to straddle that, right? You have to, you have to be grounded in the science and in the data, um, but also recognize it's an ultra rare disease. And I think you have to be informed on the clinical meaningfulness of the data by what patients tell you. I mean, I think you have to be scientifically robust and rigorous, but recognize that you're dealing with, with, with small patient samples and recognize that your early trials may have to inform later trials because nobody's done trials in these diseases before. You know, it's, it's not like developing a drug for a disease that there have been multiple previous trials done for. Like I would tell you the Duchenne opportunity we're looking at on top of exon skipping drugs, that's been done before. Like you know how to design that trial, you know how long you have to run that trial, and you know what data you need to see to succeed. If you're in a disease where there's really no approved therapies, you're you're blazing that path. And so I think it it does take some creativity and some patience, but also some scientific rigor to get you there. Which of your therapeutic candidates would you want to try to describe? Both alimipratide, our lead compound, and SBT272, which is our next clinical stage compound, um, are, have a similar mechanism of action. 272 gets into the brain better. That's kind of a way to think about the differences very simplistically. They both target the mitochondria. So mitochondria are organelles. They function really very synergistically with one another within our body. So think of it like an energy grid. Um, they're in almost all of our cells, they produce 90% of our energy. And as a byproduct of energy production, they produce oxidative stress, right? So that's why we drink red wine and eat blueberries and things is to get rid of the oxidative stress in our lives. Our approach is to try to turn it off at the source, right? Or reduce it to normal levels at the source. So what happens when mitochondria produce oxidative stress is that it starts to cannibalize the mitochondria themselves. So it starts to target um, a lipid, which for a double membrane bound organelle, lipids are super important. It starts to target a lipid called cardiolipin and it damages it. Um, Barth syndrome is a disease of cardiolipin deficiency and with that it's often lethal in infancy. So cardiolipin is essential for human life. What our compound is doing is it's going in and it's essentially protecting cardiolipin, re-aggregating it. So we can see normal like mitochondrial structure, which turns into normal mitochondrial function. That's what the drug does. It protects this key lipid, which is central to mitochondrial biology. When mitochondria get dysfunctional, they produce more oxidative stress, which eats, cannibalizes cardiolipin. So it's not necessarily the cause of the disease, but it's one of the first downstream events, which then amplifies the cycles of inflammation and fibrosis that we see across diseases. So mitochondria are also like really adaptable. Like They'll compensate for other insults our bodies have. I'll give you the example of Duchenne, right? That's caused by a dystrophin deficiency, which causes calcium overload. Mitochondria buffer that calcium overload. So in that disease, you see the mitochondrial dysfunction happen first before there's any clinical symptoms. Once the mitochondria are overwhelmed, you know, that's when you start to see you know, the, the muscle issues and the cardiac issues in that disease. So if you can shore up the mitochondria, which are, again, they're helping our bodies compensate for bioenergetic deficits in multiple situations, it, it can be a mechanism that has broad applicability. As you look forward to the way you see the regulatory environment developing, what are the different arguments that you foresee and how do you think they'll play out? 
the current regulatory environment doesn't have a clear path to approve drugs for ultra-rare diseases on the basis of a risk versus benefit type analysis. That pathway exists in Europe. Uh, and so one approach, right, would be to expand the accelerated approval pathway to explicitly permit the FDA to conduct an analysis of that nature in ultra-rare diseases where it is really, really hard to establish clinical benefit by conventional statistical means. But on the flip side, what I've also heard from FDA, and I'm absolutely sympathetic to, is that one of the challenges of the accelerated approval pathway is that it is conditioned on doing post-marketing studies, which again, could take years to conduct, right? Because that's part of the challenge. They may take too long and patients shouldn't have to wait. But sponsors don't always start those even on time. And so I think that FDA would like a way to in, to better enforce that post-marketing commitment to make sure that sponsors are actively enrolling patients, for example, at the time of approval, that the phase four commitment is clearly articulated at the time of approval. We could design that next trial. We could have sites open. We could be recruiting for it, certainly within like the nine months that it takes to get an NDA submitted, reviewed, and approved. Thanks for speaking with me today, Rini. This has been great, John. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a fun conversation. Near the beginning of my conversation with Rini McCarthy, she mentioned she's a lawyer by training. I may be biased in favor of the clarity of thought that can come from having a legal background. My sister is a lawyer, and she makes a lot of sense when I talk with her about things, but I don't think it's just me. There's more to Rini's perspective than leading the listener through the logic of a story. There's also the palpable sense of excitement you hear in Rini's voice when she talks about building a company focused on helping patients with rare diseases. As Rini put it, you're kind of blazing trails right and left. It just gives you the sense of fulfillment and purpose that is different. This sense of purpose is something I've seen close up and experienced myself when working with biopharma founders and CEOs who are focused on rare disease. There is something about getting to know the perspective of an individual patient that lets you see things in a whole new light. You can also hear how important the idea of team is for Rini. She talked with me about a leadership approach in which she asks questions and challenges perceptions all within the goal of developing a strategy together with her executive team. I'm also intrigued by Rini's definition of storytelling. She described the inside-to-outside kind of storytelling that BioBoss listeners are familiar with. When they hear biopharma founders and CEOs talk about the critical role storytelling plays in their leadership approach, Rini also talks about storytelling from the outside in, and her role in helping bring the external perspective to people at her company. That ability to tell the story from both the inside and outside sounds like a winning hand when it comes to what Rini calls bridging the communication gap and making sure teams work together in an integrated fashion. I liked the way Rini summed it up when I asked her about what kinds of people do well at stealth biotherapeutics. She said, people who are a little bit brave and who are willing to learn and push themselves. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. <laughs>